0: As we consider the identity of our infinite Savior, Jesus, one way for us to learn more about the character of Christ is by taking time to contemplate all of the messianic titles that tell us something about our Savior. You might not know this, but uh, in the Bible, we learn that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And not only that, but he's also known as our Almighty Advocate. Jesus is called the Prince of Peace, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. Not only that, but he's also the high priest of heaven and the head of the church. Jesus is the branch, the bridegroom, he's the bright morning star, and the only begotten Son of God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and at the same time, he is the great I Am, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Without debate, the Bible is filled with messianic titles which are all designed to reveal the character of Christ Jesus. With that being the case, I just want to spend some time today considering the biblical title which helps us to understand that Christ Jesus was also sent to redeem us from the slavery of sin. I'm of course referring to the title that Isaiah used when he referred to the Messiah as the Redeemer of Israel. And King Solomon also referred to our Savior as the mighty Redeemer who will plead our cause. That's right, Jesus is the Redeemer. And in order to grasp the meaning of this title, I want to take some time to consider the revelation of our risen Redeemer. It's here in our text today where we learn about the day when our risen Redeemer helped his disciples to understand how he had come to redeem those who trust in him. And as we study the scriptures before us this morning, we'll begin to see, first of all, that our risen Redeemer revealed redemption through physical incarnation. Secondly, we'll learn that our risen Redeemer revealed redemption through biblical instruction. Thirdly and finally, we'll learn that our risen Redeemer revealed redemption through relational inclusion. Well, with this as the outline, if you would, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 24. Here we learn about the way that our risen Redeemer revealed himself to his disciples. And as you make your way to the 24th chapter of Luke's gospel account, well, I just want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. It was actually in our study last week when we learned about the day when the female followers of Christ, they first found out that the tomb tomb was missing the body of our Messiah. And it was at that point in time when two angels informed them that the Lord Jesus had risen from the dead on the first day of the week, and uh, this was according to the prophetic promises that our Savior had presented during the days of his earthly ministry. Well, now here we are in our text today, we find our Redeemer now revealing himself to a couple of disciples who are making their way to Emmaus. And uh, with this as our focus, let's pick up our study of Luke chapter 24. I want to focus your attention beginning there at verse 13. Here Luke writes, Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. Now, here in these verses, we find Luke is continuing to recount the events that occurred on the day of our Redeemer's resurrection. And as we consider the way that Christ Jesus approached these guys who were there on that road that led from Jerusalem to Emmaus, well, I've always been intrigued by the fact that these these disciples didn't recognize the Lord. They spent three years with him, They knew what Jesus looked like, and yet they didn't recognize him. And in order to understand the reason for for, for my fascination about this, I want to take a moment to remember that it was just three days earlier when the body of the Lord Jesus had been beaten so badly that he couldn't even carry his own cross. He had been whipped and thrashed, his beard plucked out. I mean, he had been beaten beyond recognition, Not only that, but he had been crucified and stabbed in the heart before his body was then placed in the tomb. And as we consider the way in which the body of Jesus had been badly beaten in this sort of way and then completely drained of blood after being stabbed in the heart, there should be no doubt in our minds that the resurrection of our Savior must have been a supernatural event Because this would be easily recognized. You know, if you see a guy that's been beaten to death, completely bled out, you know, no no blood in his body at all, that, that would be someone that you would recognize. And yet they didn't recognize Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus must have been a supernatural event. And one reason I believe this, it's based on the fact that Jesus wasn't looking for a physician when he came out of the tomb. The, the people who say that, oh, it was all fake, you know, he got better in the tomb and came out. And Really? Because my understanding, uh, uh, you know, of, of the way the body works is that if you get stabbed in the heart, it, it's over. And yet Jesus wasn't crawling out looking for a physician, no. The Lord arose from the tomb and he appeared to his disciples in a body that was fully functioning. Not only that, but he also appeared in a body that wasn't readily recognized by his disciples where, where you know, if this had been the Jesus that had been uh, beaten, you know, just about to death, they would have recognized all the, all the injuries, all the wounds, but they didn't see any of that. To further prove my point, we should consider the testimony of Mary Magdalene. And with this as the focus, hold your place here in the Gospel of Luke. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. Let's turn to John chapter 20. And as you make your way to the 20th chapter of John's Gospel account, I want to take a moment to remind you that there was a group of women who went to the tomb early on that Sunday morning. And this group not, uh, it included uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and not only Mary, the mother of Jesus, but the group also included Salome, the mother of James and John, Mary, the wife of Clopas, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Mary, the mother of James and uh, Joses, and last but not least, but Mary Magdalene. And as the, all the women went into the tomb uh, to, to look at the missing, uh, the, you know, the area where Jesus was missing from, Mary Magdalene remained outside and, and Maybe she was just claustrophobic, or maybe she just wanted to weep by herself. We don't know why, but she remained outside. And with this in mind, I want to focus your attention there on the 20th chapter of John's Gospel account, beginning at verse 11. Here we learn that Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, Tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. Now, here in these verses, we find our risen Redeemer. He's revealing himself to Mary Magdalene. And at first sight, Mary assumes that this must be someone other than our Savior. She's thinking that this might be some sort of gardener or groundskeeper. If I had to guess why, it's because you know they, they, they knew that the body of Jesus had been beaten beyond recognition, and this certainly didn't look like that. Not only that, but it's also my guess that the resurrected body of Jesus was uh, a different, you know, uh, different from the flesh and the blood that had been nailed to the cross. I like the way that Paul explains this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's there where he declares the body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Christian, listen, isn't it nice to know that the earthly body of every believer will eventually receive an upgrade in the resurrection. And listen, if you want to spend all your time in the gym trying to perfect the body that you have right now, go for it. But it's eventually going to die. It's eventually going to be sown in corruption. It's eventually going to be buried. And it's going to give way to a spiritual body for those who trust in Jesus Christ. I'm looking forward to the upgrade. Until then, pass the fried Twinkies. But anyway, so... (laughs) But seriously, as we consider the way that those who trust in Jesus will receive a brand new resurrected body, well, it only stands to reason that the Lord Jesus also received a a resurrected body which wasn't readily recognized by his disciples. And while it's true that Mary Magdalene didn't immediately recognize the resurrected body of Jesus, it's also true that the eyes of, of, of the guys here in our text today, their eyes were restrained in some sort of way. But this has the focus. If you would, let's make our way back to Luke chapter 24. I want to take another look there at verse 16. Here Luke tells us that their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. Now that word restrained is translated from a Greek word which was used of that which is seized or held fast. The same word was also used of something that is kept in control or constrained. And as we consider the meaning of this word, there should be no doubt that our Redeemer was somehow restraining their eyes because he wanted to reveal himself in another way. And if I had to guess why, it's because the Lord is calling every believer to walk by faith, not by sight. This was precisely the point that Paul made in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's verse 7 where he declares that we walk by faith, not by sight. In other words, our Redeemer has decided to reveal himself to those who place their faith in him. And so rather than revealing his resurrection to these men in a strictly visual way... Christ Jesus restrained their eyes as he approached them, and then he encouraged them to begin recounting the details about the earthly ministry of the Messiah. As a matter of fact, look with me again here at Luke chapter 24. I want to begin reading there at verse 17. Here we learn that he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk in our sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem, and have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests And our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Now here in these verses, we find our risen Redeemer. He's asking his disciples to expound upon the events that they were discussing there on that road. And we must not fail to notice that these guys were quick to assume that our Savior must have been a stranger are, they're thinking that this must be a stranger in this area, and the reason why is due to the fact that the news of our Messiah's earthly ministry was the most popular topic of conversation throughout the entire land of Israel. This this was hitting you know all of the uh, major news streams. You know they uh, everywhere you went they were talking about Jesus. From the the night when the shepherds first shared the good news about our Savior's birth until the day when the multitudes gathered together in Jerusalem to witness the crucifixion of Christ Jesus, the followers and the faithless were all focused on Jesus. I like the way that Paul put it in Acts chapter 26 where he defended his faith in Jesus by declaring, King Agrippa knows About these things, I speak boldly, for I am sure these events are all familiar to him, for they were not done in a corner. He's saying the king who's overseeing this trial right now knows everything that I'm saying is true, because it wasn't done in secret. Everyone in Israel was well aware of our Messiah's earthly ministry, they were aware of his miracles. That's for this reason that the disciples who were making their way to Emmaus were completely surprised to find a stranger who seemed to be clueless about the earthly ministry of Christ Jesus. That being the case, they quickly caught him up to speed with a rapid-fire list of those things that make Jesus completely unique. And uh, I first want to notice there in verse 19 where they refer to our Redeemer as Jesus of Nazareth. This reminds me of the statement uh, made by Matthew. It's in Matthew chapter uh, 2. There we learn that Jesus came and dwelt in in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. In other words, you know, when Mary and Joseph moved their family to Nazareth, they were actually fulfilling a prophecy which reveals how our Messiah would be called Nazarene. Therefore, when the disciples here refer to our Redeemer as Jesus of Nazareth, They were simultaneously referring to him as the Christ who came to fulfill messianic prophecies. Not only that, but they also pointed to Jesus as a mighty prophet of God. Notice with me again there in the middle of verse 19. Here the disciples refer to the Lord as Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. Now, that word mighty was translated from the Greek word dinatos, which was used of the dynamic power that's needed to perform incredible miracles. And as we consider the miraculous ministry of our Messiah, we can be certain that the Lord was filled with this supernatural dinatos, this this power to perform miracles for this reason that the scholars who created the New Living Translation, they rendered this verse in this way. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles, and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God, and all the people, all the people saw this. And after describing the way in which our mighty Messiah had been condemned to the death of the cross... The disciples then began to share the hope that they had as they waited to see if Jesus would, in fact, arise on the third day. Now, that word hoping, which is found there in verse 21. It's translated from a Greek word which was used of the Israelites who were filled with the joyful confidence that they had as they waited for their Redeemer to show up and save them from the enemies of God. So it's not this, this wishful kind of thinking sort of hope, but it's a joyful confidence. That's the kind of hope that we're talking about. And they were hoping that Jesus was actually the Redeemer. As a matter of fact, look with me again there at Verse 21. Here again, the disciples declared, we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Now, just to be clear about this, the word redeem here is translated from a Greek word, which was used of the ransom payment, which is made in order to set a servant free from their bondage. And as we consider the way that these disciples of Christ were hoping that Jesus was the one who would come and redeem them, it's important to understand that they were actually hoping that the Lord was their kinsman-redeemer, because they were looking for the kinsman-redeemer to come and set them free from their spiritual captivity. Now, just to be clear, the law of the kinsman-redeemer is actually found in Leviticus chapter 25. There we learn that the Israelites who were sold into slavery could be redeemed again. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his uncle's son may redeem him, or anyone who is near of kin to him in his family may redeem him, or if he is able, he may redeem himself. Thus he shall reckon with him who bought him. The price of his release shall be according to the number of years from the year that he was sold to him until the year of Jubilee. It shall be according to the time of a hired servant for him. Now, According to this Levitical law, an impoverished Israelite who sold themselves or was sold into the bondage of slavery could then be redeemed and released by a close relative who is willing to pay the price for their ransom. And in light of this law, uh, we shouldn't be surprised to learn that the disciples of Christ were hoping that Jesus was the kinsman redeemer who had come to set them free by paying the ransom price. But what they failed to realize was that the ransom price was his blood. The blood of our kinsman redeemer was the, the price of the purchased possession. I like the way that the apostle Peter explained it in 1 Peter chapter 1, its verses 18 and 19 where Peter declares you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Jesus didn't redeem us with cash. He's redeemed us by his blood. His blood paid for our freedom. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by offering himself as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins and seeing how it was required for a relative to act as the kinsman redeemer, well, then it was necessary for the Lord to reveal our redemption through his physical incarnation. He has to be a kinsman redeemer. He has to be kinfolk as some might say. He has to be a relative of ours to be able to redeem us. And so the incarnation was completely necessary. I like the way that Paul explains it in Galatians chapter four. It's there where he declares, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his sons into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. From this we can see that the physical incarnation of Jesus was absolutely necessary and the reason why is because he had to become our kinsman to be our kinsman redeemer. In other words, he had to become human in order to redeem humans. And the Son of God became a human so that he could redeem humans and now those who trust in the incarnate Son of God can actually become the adopted children of God. Now, this brings us to our second point, because listen, our risen Redeemer not only revealed our redemption through his physical incarnation, but our risen Redeemer also revealed our redemption through biblical instruction. And with this as the focus, let's continue making our way through the text before us today. If you would, let's look back at Luke chapter 24. I want to pick up our study beginning at verse 22. Beginning at verse 22, the disciples of Christ declare Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels and said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Here in these verses, we find our risen redeemer. He's admonishing these disciples. And the reason why is because they weren't willing to believe the eyewitness reports of those women. Not only that, but the Lord Jesus also rebuked them because they were also rejecting the writings of the prophets who had previously revealed the resurrection of our Redeemer in the pages of the Old Testament. It was at that point in time when the Lord Jesus began to engage in an expositional study of the Scriptures, beginning with the first five books written by Moses and then moving on to the writings of the prophets. Now remember, the eyes of these disciples were still being restrained at this moment. And while the Lord Jesus could have simply just revealed himself to them in this sort of experiential, physical sort of way, he could have just said, here I am. The the women were right. Believe all women, he could have said. Uh, but, but, But he didn't. No one said he pointed them back to the Bible. And he took the time to expound the word of God. Just to be clear, that word expounded, which is found there in verse 27, it's translated from a Greek word which was used uh, of the teacher who thoroughly explains the meaning of something. In other words, Jesus thoroughly explained the Old Testament prophecies which revealed his death, his burial, and his resurrection. I don't know about you, but I would have loved to have been there. I would love to have a recording of that Bible study. I'm sure it was incredible. The Old Testament contains at least 300 prophecies that were written specifically to reveal our Redeemer. For example, there are prophecies that reveal the virgin birth of our Savior, There are also prophecies that reveal how our Redeemer would come from the bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and David. There are prophecies that inform us about the place of his birth and about the way that he would suffer and die. And what's even more is there are prophecies that point to the resurrection of our Redeemer. And Jesus expounded from the scriptures all of these things. And as we consider the hundreds of Old Testament prophecies that were written in the Old Testament to reveal our Redeemer, it's no wonder that the Lord challenged these disciples for failing to believe the Bible. The Bible had already presented all of these things. And so when they refused to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, they were refusing to believe in the word of God. Not only that, but it's also important for us to understand that our Redeemer has not only revealed himself through his physical incarnation, but our Redeemer has also revealed himself here in the pages of his holy word. That's right. Our Savior already revealed himself. Here in the scriptures of the Old Testament, and as we consider the way that Christ Jesus spent this time expounding the scriptures for these disciples so that they could understand it, we would all do well to realize that our Redeemer is still revealing himself through the exposition of biblical instruction. It's for this reason that the Lord has raised up pastors who are spiritually gifted to teach the Scriptures, so that those who are seeking biblical instruction might be convinced and rebuked and exhorted by the Word of God. In this way, the pastors that God has raised up are helping every believer to be fully equipped so that then we as, as a church can then go into the world and present the message of salvation to those who are still lost. I like the way that Paul puts this in 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's there where he instructs Timothy by informing him that the holy scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Why? Well, Paul explains. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. According to Paul, the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make us wise for salvation, uh, are, are also the Scriptures that equip us for the good work of the Great Commission. And in this way, we can see how our risen Redeemer has decided to use the Bible to reveal the way that He redeems sinners like us. And not only that, but the Holy Scriptures also provides us with everything that we need so that we can become those believers who are able to accomplish the great commission of Christ Jesus. And what this means is that the believer who receives biblical instruction will then be able to reveal the redemption of our risen Redeemer to those who don't yet believe through biblical instruction. Now this brings us to our third and final point because listen, our risen Redeemer not only revealed our redemption through his physical incarnation and through biblical instruction, but our risen Redeemer has also revealed our redemption through relational inclusion. And with this as the focus, I want to continue making our way through the text before us today. If you would look with me again here at Luke chapter 24, I want to pick up our study beginning at verse 28. Here Luke tells us that they drew near And they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? Now, as these disciples arrived at their destination, the Lord indicated that he was ready to continue traveling in the same direction that they were headed. And, and yet, according to Luke here, the day was already far spent, which is to say that you know, it's almost the end of the day here. And, and therefore, rather than allowing him to leave, they, they constrained him, which is to say that they insisted that, they, that he stay the night with them. And while it's true that these guys still thought that they were simply showing kindness to a stranger... It's also true that they were actually asking our Savior to abide with them. That's what they were asking. They were asking Jesus to continue abiding with them. And we should also notice that it was after he agreed to abide with them, that's when our Redeemer finally revealed himself to them by opening up the eyes of these disciples. From this, we can see that our Redeemer has a plan to reveal himself to those who will invite him in to abide with them. those who invite Christ into our lives, those who constrain Christ so that he might abide with us, he turns around and reveals himself to us. And just to be clear, that word abide, which is found there in verse 29, it's translated from a Greek word which was used of those who remain or reside in the same place over a period of time. And it's for this reason that Robert Young rendered the beginning of verse 29 in this way. They constrained him saying, remain with us. They weren't willing to let him go. while it's true that these disciples asked our Savior to abide with them, our Redeemer has also invited us to abide with him. As a matter of fact, it's in John chapter 15 where the Lord Jesus declares, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine neither can you unless you abide in me i am the vine you are the branches he who abides in me and i in him bears much fruit for without me you can do nothing jesus is calling us to abide with him and not only that but he's actually inviting us to abide in him incredible sort of like a branch that remains connected to the vine, the Lord is inviting us to enter into a relational connection with Him, which then enables us to become those believers who are bearing supernatural fruit. And as we continue to remain in a relationship with our Redeemer, He continues revealing Himself to us. In order to make my case, let's take another look here, beginning at verse 32. Here in Luke 24, beginning of verse 30, I should say, beginning of verse 30, it says, it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they knew him and he vanished from their sight. Here in these verses, we learn how this time of communion with Christ Jesus, it was the way that our Redeemer decided to reveal himself to these disciples. It was at this moment there at the table where they were breaking bread together that their eyes were opened in such a way that they were able to know him. And I can't help but to wonder if as he stretched out his hands, they saw the nail prints in his wrists and realized, oh, this is Jesus. It's very possible, though, it's pure speculation. But regardless of the way that the Lord revealed himself to them, their eyes were opened, they were able to know him. And just to be clear, that word knew, found in verse 31, well, it's translated from a Greek word which speaks of those who are thoroughly acquainted with another person. They knew him. They became thoroughly acquainted with him. And in order to further grasp this sort of relational knowledge, I, I want to take another look there at verse, at the beginning of Verse 31. Here again, we learn that their eyes were opened and they knew him and he vanished from their sight and they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? Now this is proof that they were Mormons <laughs> because, because, <laughs> because this is the burning in the bosom, no doubt. <laughs> okay, I'm... That's not true. As we consider the way in which the Lord Jesus here vanished from their sight, I'm I'm again fascinated by this. And we must not fail to realize here that this was just another way that our Redeemer was revealing Himself. Now, grasp the the odd nature of the way the Lord works here. He revealed Himself by vanishing. What sense does that make? And yet, in the economy of the Lord, it made perfect sense. God's ways are higher than our ways. He revealed himself by vanishing. He revealed that he is the redeemer they were hoping for by vanishing from their sight. And, and, you know, I could spend the rest of the day speculating about whether this was some sort of dimensional travel or, what you know, what nature of body will we receive in the resurrection and these sorts of things. And That's all funny and fine, but... But listen, it was moments after Jesus disappeared that his disciples realized that they had not only received head knowledge of the Lord, but they had received heart knowledge. When he was no longer visible to them, they realized didn't our hearts burn? Didn't our hearts burn? Wasn't there, you know, that warm, fuzzy, you know, so to speak? As he spoke to us and as he taught the word to us, wasn't there that inner recognition, that heartfelt knowledge that we already knew who this was before he vanished? Please understand that there's a huge difference between head knowledge and heart knowledge. Huge difference between head knowledge and heart knowledge. There's a, there's a massive chasm uh, between knowing about a person and actually knowing the person. We can know everything that can be known about Jesus and yet still miss out on that heartfelt relationship. I'm sure we've all done book reports on interesting people in history. I remember my first book report as a child was on Harriet Tubman and was blown away by the courage of this lady. And I could have, when I was a kid, I could have told you every detail about this woman that was ever recorded. And yet I never knew her. I believe I'll meet her in heaven. But I had all this head knowledge about her. I had no heart knowledge. I had no relationship with her. And in similar fashion, there's a lot of people who have spent lots of time studying everything that can be known about Jesus Christ, and yet they don't know him. They don't have heart knowledge of Jesus. And with that being the case, I just want to take a moment to remind you that the Lord Jesus is not only inviting us to know about him from his word, but he's also inviting us to have a relationship with him as he abides with us. I like the way that Jesus put it in John chapter 17. It's there where he declares, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. He's, he was praying for us. And then he says, here's his prayer, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe you sent me. And the glory Which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. How incredible is that? Christ Jesus was praying for us to to be included in this incredible relationship with you know, the Father and Christ and Christ and us and we together. and how incredible. He not only wants, to, wants us to have head knowledge that comes from consistent study of His word, but he wants us to experience the, the spiritual communion that we can have with our risen redeemer, and, and I'll remind you that the spirit of our God now dwells within the heart of every believer so that we can have communion with Christ Jesus. We have become, Christian, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has then sealed the born-again believer into the body of Christ, and that seal remains until the day of our redemption. I like the way that Paul put it in Ephesians chapter 1. It's there where he declares, in him you also trusted After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. In other words, those who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we've received this spiritual seal, and it's a seal that secures our salvation until the day of our redemption. And just to be clear, the day of our redemption will occur as the creation itself is delivered from the bondage of corruption That, as, as you know, the creation is transformed into the glorious liberty of, of the children of God. This, of course, includes uh, the, the redemption of our bodies as every born-again believer receives their incorruptible body, which then provides us with everlasting victory over sin and death. Not only that, but I should also remind you about the promise that Paul presented in Romans chapter eight. It's there where he declares, as many as are led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Christian, listen, the Holy Spirit not only seals us until the day of our redemption, but he is currently confirming our relational inclusion into the family of God. And he does this by enabling every believer to commune with our Heavenly Father by faith in Jesus Christ. Then as the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are adopted children of God, he enables us to enjoy communion with God the Father through the faith that we've placed in our risen Redeemer. Now, as we begin to wrap up this study here, I just want to remind you of a promise that Job presented in the 19th chapter of his book. It's Job 19, verse 25. There he declares, I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. From this, we can see that there's coming a day when our risen Redeemer will once again stand on the earth. And while it's true that Jesus vanished from the earth on the day of his ascension into heaven, it's also true that he's going to return and he's going to establish his kingdom here on the earth. And it's for this reason that he encouraged those who are here at the time of the tribulation. He, He encouraged us to look up and lift up our heads because our redemption draws near our redemption draws near. What this has to focus, I believe that we would all do well to follow this advice. No matter what time it is on God's calendar, we should look up and lift up our heads and realize that our redemption draws near. The day of our redemption draws near and what that means is that there's a day coming soon when we will stand in the presence of our Redeemer. With this as the focus, it's my hope that you'll all remember that our risen Redeemer revealed our redemption first through his physical incarnation. Our risen Redeemer also revealed our redemption prior to that through biblical instruction that we find in, in, in the prophetic word of God. And our risen Redeemer also revealed our redemption through relational inclusion, which is confirmed as the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And knowing that there is coming a day when every Christian will receive the fullness of this redemption, I encourage you to become those believers who are even today rejoicing in the redemption that has already been secured by our Savior, our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.